Second Sunday after Pentecost, the Old Testament reading comes from Hosea chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 6, verses 6. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second reading comes from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that we would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents, for if it is the adherents of the law, who are to be the heirs, the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was, a good, which was as good as dead, since he was about to be told, or who or, who, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It was counted to us, it will be counted to us, who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the ninth chapter. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, 
Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Alvin was the right guy for the job. But you wouldn't have thought so. In the beginning, he was a pacifist sent to war. Alvin Cullum York was born in a two-room log cabin in rural Tennessee in 1887. And his father worked very hard, and Alvin and his brothers worked with his father there uh, to try and make a living, but the family remained dirt poor. Alvin hunted to help feed the family, and he became a crack shot. He drank, and he was prone to fighting, even though his mother was a church-going pacifist. When he was 27, though, he got serious about his faith, and he swore not to fight anymore. But when World War II broke out, he said, I was worried clean through. I didn't want to go and kill. I believed in my Bible. And although he claimed conscientious objector status, he was not exempted from military service. And in 1917, he began that service in the army. And during one offensive, a multitude of German machine guns had his group pinned down. The uh, people around him were falling. They were dying like crazy. There were something like 30 German machine guns. And then York struggled in himself. He struggled with his desire not to kill. But he and seven other men were ordered to go and take out those German machine guns. And so he led them forward, and those machine guns were trained on those seven men, and they were pinned down. He was losing men. And so York stood up, and he began sharpshooting and taking out the German gunners one by one. And finally, the German lieutenant, who was in charge of the enemy regiment, called out and offered to surrender his troops to York. When York finally delivered those that he had captured to Brigadier General Lindsay, the general remarked, Well, York, I hear you've captured the whole German army. No, sir, York replied. I got only 132. York's actions helped the Americans capture a German-controlled uh, railroad. And his actions later on led to him being honored with the Medal of Honor. Alvin York's commander had certainly chosen the right guy. 
Today in our gospel reading, Matthew is chosen by Jesus to be one of his followers. But Jesus chose the wrong guy. The Pharisees know it. They're shocked that Jesus would associate with such a dog, let alone enter his house and eat a meal with him. His disciples knew that he had chosen the wrong guy. You know, the Romans, they had their taxes that they had to collect from the people. And not just the Romans, but Herod Antipas, in his local government, he levied his own taxes. And it didn't really matter how those tax collectors did it. All that mattered was that the right amount came in to Rome or to Herod. And so the whole system was ripe for someone to take advantage of it. And Matthew knew it. He was a sellout, a traitor. He'd gone over not just to the dark side, but to the very dark side. He turned on his own people. He made a bargain with hated Rome for his own financial gain. God, country, family, friends, it meant nothing to Matthew. He was number one. His God was his belly. And now what? He's going to be one of Jesus' inside people? Jesus calls him to be a disciple of his? That's just wrong. Maybe uh, you have watched the HGTV uh, program Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Uh, there, uh, the people go in, they find a very deserving person, right? Someone who doesn't have a lot of money, but they are someone who is very active in their community, giving back to the community, doing volunteer work or something like that. And, and they go in and they, they gut the house and they make it over and make it into this wonderful, wonderful place for this person who has given so much. These people that have this makeover done for them are generally poor and good people. But Matthew was not good, and he certainly was not poor. He hadn't given back to his community. He was taking advantage of it. Jesus chose the wrong guy. See, Jesus isn't supposed to call Matthew. Jesus isn't supposed to be good and kind to the undeserving. Jesus gets it all wrong. He, he has no time for the deserving, for the righteous, or should I say for the self-righteous. If you're about putting people into categories and calling these people good and righteous and those people bad, if you're putting if you're into putting the good, the clean, the, the holy ones who do their best and try their hardest into this camp, the ones who aren't, the ones who don't, the ones who aren't clean, the ones who aren't trying their hardest into that camp, then it seems like Jesus has no time for you. Instead, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
to those who are sick. Sometime around 1600, the Italian painter Caravaggio painted the painting that you have in your bulletin. It's titled, The Calling of Matthew, The Calling of St. Matthew. So I want you to take that out. We're going to look at that for a minute here. I know it's a little small. I wanted to bring the original to you, but it's ten and a half feet square. It's also in Italy. If you look carefully at that painting, I want us to focus on a couple of characters. First of all, can you find Jesus in there? I know it's not a really good copy either. Probably if you were looking at the original painting, you'd find him, but he is the one with the halo. Can you see the halo? It's very vague. It's on the very far right of the painting there. That's Jesus. And then can you find Matthew? When I first looked for Matthew, I found the wrong person, the wrong guy. <laughs> he is the elderly man sitting at the table. He's the one in the black hat. It looks like he's pointing at the younger man, but he's not. He's pointing at himself. Light is streaming into the painting from outside the painting. Light is streaming into the darkness of the painting. One of Caravaggio's um, signature um, methods, light and dark. The light is coming from the direction of Jesus, and it's shining full on Matthew's face. And it does appear that Matthew is pointing to himself. Uh, you can see the questioning in his eyes. You want me? <laughs> You want me? Maybe he's thinking that Jesus has chosen the wrong guy. Matthew's not looking for God. Matthew is not good. He's not poor. He's bad. He's turned his back on God, his country, his family, his friends, his fellow human beings. In using them, he's grown very rich. And it's to this wealthy sinner that Jesus comes and points to him and says, follow me. Jesus chose the wrong guy. It's interesting, too, that Matthew is not called by Jesus until the ninth chapter of Matthew's gospel. Remember, Matthew's the one writing this gospel. And much has happened before this in the gospel. Jesus has preached, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. A Roman centurion has displayed great faith in Jesus, has come humbly to him, asking for him to heal his servant, and not just not to come to his house because the centurion says, I am not worthy. Just say the word, and he'll be healed. Poor Peter's mother-in-law, who wanted to serve Jesus. She's lying in bed with a fever. Jesus goes and touches her hand, and the fever leaves her. She get up, gets up and serves him. Jesus has met two poor, demonic men, demon-possessed men in the land of the Gadarenes. <clears throat> he set them free by casting the demons out into the herd of pigs. 
He's told a crippled paralytic, rise up, take your bed, and go home. And he did. He healed him. He forgave his sins, too. See, we get these. We understand this, that Jesus has come for the poor and the downtrodden and the humble, the downcast, the ones that have faith to believe in Jesus. But that Jesus would seek out the rich guy, the one who has turned his back on God, the one who cares nothing for anybody else, that Jesus would come to him and shine his light into his darkness. this blatant, unrepentant sinner, and call him to be one of the 12. That's really hard to swallow. Jesus chose the wrong guy. There's another thing that Jesus has preached. No one can serve two masters. Look back there at that painting. Can you find Matthew's well, you, you, you can see his left hand. His left hand is pointing to himself. Where is his right hand? I had to look for that. You might have to follow the outfit that he's wearing and see the clothing to identify which arm is his. You see what he's doing with his right hand? He's holding onto the money on the table. It's what Matthew has valued above everything else. With his right hand, he holds on to his God. And Jesus calls him, Matthew, the hated tax collector, to be one of his disciples. Jesus has chosen the wrong guy. He always does. There's a word for that in the Greek, a word for choosing the wrong guy. Eleos, eleos. That's a word that's used when good things are given to someone who doesn't deserve it. It's a word that's used when a tax collector who has thumbed his nose at God is invited to follow God's Christ to the cross and to the empty tomb. We translate that word, eleos, translated, translated as mercy. We know almost nothing about Matthew other than that he's a tax collector and a disciple of Jesus. His name appears in the lists of the disciples that are in the Gospels. We have it here in his own gospel. Matthew, in the next chapter, has a list of the disciples. Matthew does an interesting thing in that list. In the next chapter, Matthew says this. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. How many people in that list does Matthew show in a bad light? Two. Did you catch both? Judas, who betrayed him, 
and himself. Why does he say he's a tax collector? The hated word, right? Because Matthew knows God's mercy. He owns it. He owns that he was a tax collector. He embraces it because the calling of a Jewish tax collector to follow Jesus just drips with mercy. He knows he's the wrong guy. Look at the painting again. We can notice something else here. All of the people in the painting including Jesus, are in period dress. But it's not the period you might expect. (laughs) It's not first century Israel. They're not dressed as Jews would have been in Jesus' day, are they? Matthew is not dressed the way he would have been. They're dressed in the period that Caravaggio painted it. And maybe that's because Caravaggio sees himself in Matthew's seat. It is said that Caravaggio used regular people as his models. And he took, as they sat there, he went to paint. A lot of the painters would go to drawing on the canvas and then the models could leave and the painter would fill it in. He went straight from the model to the paint. It's said that he used a tax collector for this painting. But does he see himself there? His own story is full of fighting and brawling. Uh, He is supposed to have killed a man uh, and been convicted of it and fled and all this. This is his life. He was looking for a pardon. And if you look at that painting, if you look at, at Matthew, you look at his eyes, you can just see the emotion there, the questioning. Makes you wonder whether Caravaggio understood the mercy of God well. God's mercy towards sinners. And maybe that idea that this painting is in period dress, maybe that helps you, too, to see yourself in that painting. To see yourself in Matthew's place. Because Matthew's call by Jesus is the same call that you received at the font. Or when you heard that gospel message about your Savior, Jesus. Because we all are Matthew. Jesus has pointed his finger at you and the light has streamed into your darkness. That's you in the picture. Even with the hand of your flesh still on your God, Jesus calls you to himself, calls you into his light, sends that beam of light, faith into your dark heart changing you, remaking you, repainting you as the Holy Spirit works faith in your heart to believe and to follow Jesus 
who was delivered up for your trespasses, who was raised for your justification. In Caravaggio's painting, Matthew's eyes seem to be questioning why Jesus is calling him to follow. But those eyes of flesh will soon become eyes of faith, just as you have been given eyes of faith to see Jesus as he really is. God's Son, sent to call you to himself. Thank God that he sent Jesus to seek and to save the wrong guy, even you and me. Amen.